0: you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John will be in John chapter 3 this morning, and I've entitled this sermon, uh, From the Words of Christ, here in this passage as you'll see it, and the title of the sermon is simply, You Must Be Born Again. You must be born again. We're in John chapter 3, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8, here we read, the Apostle John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Father, we bow our heads before You this morning and we thank You for Your grand design of the plan of redemption. We thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to teach us what it means to be born again. We pray, God, that in the time frame that we have together in this service that You would breathe life into those who are dead this morning. That You would allow each one of us to look to Christ. For our hope, and for our happiness, and for our fulfillment, and for our joy, and for our life. We come to you as broken vessels today, who desperately want to be filled up with the spirit of the living God. So come to this place through your word, God, and move in our hearts today in a way that would bring change, that would bring hearts to worship, to follow, and adore the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the greatest miracle that God could ever do in your life is the miracle of the new birth. Greater than God creating physical life in the womb is God creating spiritual life in your heart. Greater than God creating physical eyes to see is God creating spiritual eyes to see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater than God birthing us into our earthly families is God birthing us into the spiritual body of the church. Greater than when God created all of nature is when God gave you a new nature through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Greater than when Jesus turned the water into wine is when He turned sinners into sons and into daughters by His beloved grace. The greatest miracle that God could ever perform in you is the miracle of the new birth. Another way to say that someone has received the new birth is to say that that person has been born again. And to be born again is to be regenerated by the Spirit of the living God. It is what must happen to you and what must happen to me if we are to ever receive eternal life. You must be born again. One evangelist that popularized the phrase to be born again, at least back in the 60s and 70s, was the well-known Billy Graham. We talked about him a little bit last week, and in his crusades, he would place a lot of emphasis on you must be born again. In fact, in 1977, he wrote the book, which was entitled Born Again. Maybe some of you read that book. It actually broke publishing history by printing, uh, there was 800,000 copies printed in the first printing, and then they had to immediately print more copies. His best-sold book, How to Be Born Again. And I'm here to tell you this morning that being born again is not a step-by-step process. That title could be misleading, how to be born again, as if it's something you do, if it's a certain steps that you take, as if it's something somehow you ratchet up enough, enough work to do effort to somehow reach God. That's not how you're born again. And this morning we see that being born again has a totally different meaning altogether. And while maybe Billy Graham popularized that term, born again, in the last century, it's been around since the days of the Bible. It was Jesus Christ who coined the term. It was the great theologian, even in the early church of Augustine, who also talked about the idea of being born again, where he said 1,500 years ago, no one will make a good end to the life into which he is born unless he is born again. It was the great evangelist preacher that Dr. Severance, Dr. Steve Severance, I'm giving you an honorary doctorate this morning. All right? Honorary doctorate. You guys with me? You, you're, you're all with me? Okay. Yeah, we're getting some hand clouds for you. But it was, it was George Whitfield, who of the, the preacher of the 1700s, who preached this topic of being born again more than any topic that he ever preached in his entire ministry. And it was Whitfield's zeal for evangelism that carried him back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean some 13 times when uh, it wasn't a simple commute. That's still not a simple commute today, but it was certainly dangerous in that day. And while he was in Oxford at Oxford University, when he was just 21 years old is when he experienced the new life. He was marvelously delivered from a life of debauchery and evil associations. And this is what he had to say about it at the time. Quote, God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and to enable me by a living faith to lay hold of His dear Son. And oh, with what joy I was filled when the weight of sin left me and the abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. In His excitement, about his conversion, he wrote to all of his relatives. "I have found that there is such a thing as the new birth. George Whitfield was changed on that day when he was twenty one years old, and he began to preach about the new birth over and over again. In fact, his favorite text was our text this morning, John chapter three, verse three, where it was said that he preached over three hundred times this message about what it means to be born. Again, in season and out of season, in public and in private, he ceaselessly proclaimed that message. He felt that he was sent into the world from God to proclaim, John 3:3 that you must be born again. He made the doctrine of the new birth his universal message because he found that it met a universal need, preaching it time and time again. And then towards the end of his life, I don't know if you know this, but George Whitfield actually died at age 55 pretty young man. I used to think that was old. It's getting younger every year. And he said this towards the end of his life, one of his last messages, I am now 55 years of age, and I am more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself, and that without it, you can never be saved. That's the message of George Whitfield. That's the message of Jesus Christ. That's the message I bring to you this morning. You must be born again. People got tired of hearing Whitfield preach that sermon over 300 times. That's enough for almost one day of every day of the year. And why, Mr. Whitfield, inquired one of his friends one day, why do you so often preach on you must be born again? Because, replied Whitfield, looking solemnly into the face of his questioner, you must be born again. My friend, the same is true of you and I today. Despite your knowledge of the Bible, despite your potential upbringing in church, despite your conservative views, despite your kind demeanor, despite your adherence to a decent morality, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Until you are born again, you will never see God until you are born again, you will never be satisfied. Until you are born again, you will never even sniff the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the new birth that we're discussing this morning? It is God and planting spiritually, uh, spiritual life in a spiritually dead person. The new birth is the life of God in the soul of a man. To be born again changes your verdict from guilty to innocent By the blood of the Lamb. To be born again changes your state. From that which would be condemned. To that which will now be consecrated unto God. To be born again acknowledges your best works as filthy rags. And clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. To be born again is a transformation. That only God can do through his sovereign grace. And by his sovereign power. And so the question on the table for all of us this morning. Is simply have you been born again. Not have you read through the New Testament. Not have you bought all the latest books. In the Christian bookstore. Not have you attended the Bible conference. The question is not did you go to Awana. Not did you attend a Christian school. Not did you go to the flagpole. i see you at the pole at your public school. It matters not how much you give. It matters not how often you come to church. It matters not that you're in a small group. The question that I want you to think about during the course of this sermon this morning is have you been born again? This morning I want us to learn about the new birth. I want us to look at the interaction between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And today we're going to examine seven truths about the new birth as we consider this statement of Christ, you must be born again. It's there In your notes, if you're taking notes on your outline, the first one is this, the unspoken ignorance of the new birth. The unspoken ignorance of the new birth. Verses 1 and 2, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The text tells us that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. The name Nicodemus means victor over the people. It was actually a Greek name, not a Hebrew name, but a Greek name. And some have identified Nicodemus as being from a wealthy family that at some point moved to Jerusalem and they lived there and took a prominent place in society. Now he's a part of this elite spiritual group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the Green Berets of Christianity. The Pharisees were the ones that were the most stout and the most powerful, and the most serious, it seemed, at least externally, about their faith. The word Pharisee most likely comes from a Hebrew verb meaning to separate. And the Pharisees were notoriously known for separating themselves out of the mainstream Jewish culture and population and evidently linked themselves to the idea that they were the spiritual marines of the first century. You need to be a Pharisee in order to be close to God. You need to be a Pharisee in order to really care about your faith. You need to be a Pharisee to really understand the Bible. Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament... They believed in miracles and they believed in an afterlife. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels and in demons. They believed in living a pious life. They were conservative. They were the Republican Christians of their day. They were to the right. They were so far to the right that they were to the right of Fox News. (laughs) This was the Pharisees of the first century, but they were overly focused on the Mosaic law. And not only were they overly focused on the Mosaic law, they were equally zealous about their own man-made laws and their own man-made traditions that they held on par with Scripture. They were known as classical legalists who believed that they could make it into heaven by being law-abiding citizens of the covenant community of God. The Pharisees originated during the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. There's 400 years of silence. And it was during that time that Josephus, a well-known historian, believes that there were around 6,000 Pharisees at the time of King Herod the Great. And because many of the Pharisees uh, were so outward about, uh, about their spirituality, Jesus called them into question time and time again. It was almost too good to be true. They claimed to keep all the law and even extra laws and they fasted more and they supposedly gave more and they supposedly did more than anyone else. And so Jesus confronted them and in fact, in Matthew chapter 23, 23, you're familiar with some of these confrontations where Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And he's saying to them, you take great Care to tithe out of the small portions of spices that you have in your house. The Old Testament made an allotment for that, that they would tithe. And so he says to them, You have tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In other words, you take care of every jot and tittle, which is important. I'm not saying it's not important to take care of every jot and tittle, but Jesus's accusation against them was that they had neglected the weightier matters of the law, which was justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus also confronted them by saying, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now can you imagine you're trying to eat in a neat and in a, you know, a careful way and so you have a gnat that somehow gets in your food or gets in your drink and so you strain the gnat out. You go to great care to get rid of that gnat. Today I just use my finger, right? You kinda stick it in the edge of your glass, you kinda get the gnat and you kinda flick it out. You know you've done that, all right? So they're saying they would go to all kind of care to strain out a gnat, but then they would swallow a camel. They would take an unclean animal and swallow the whole camel whole while they would go to great care to get rid of the gnat. And so Jesus calls them on it. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate. But on the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They were whitewashed tombs. They went to great effort to make the exterior look all clean. And yet on the inside, Jesus says, they were full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Jesus has a different way of cleaning. It's from the inside out. It starts in your heart. It starts by being regenerated. It starts by repenting of your sin. It starts in the core of your being, and it moves out. And the Pharisees had a different style of cleaning. They cleaned from the outside and tried to work their way in, and yet they never got there. Once the outside looked good, and nobody could see the holes, and nobody could see the cracks, and nobody could see their real character, they would stop right there. Well, let me tell you something. Keeping the law never saved anybody. Looking good on the outside never saves anybody. Looking religious never helps you one single bit. In fact, the apostle Paul writes in Romans 3:20 20 through 22 for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so we're making sure we understand here that righteousness doesn't come from adhering to the law. Righteousness comes as a gift from Christ Christ. Righteousness is not something you earn. Righteousness is something that you're given by the grace of God. And I say all that just to say that being a Pharisee is actually not a good thing. Nowhere in the Bible are they revered as being truly godly, humble, Christ followers. Right? They were simply a group of prideful religious people who didn't like Jesus, who didn't listen to Jesus, and they wanted Him killed. Except, that is, for Nicodemus. Apparently, this one Pharisee, this one man came out of the Pharisaical thinking and at least was willing to come to Christ. He seemed to have a teachable spirit. He definitely had an, an interest in interacting with our Lord. And notice how the text says about Nicodemus that he is a ruler of the Jews, which quite possibly points to the likelihood that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing council of Israel though they were still subservient to to the Romans, right? The Roman Empire had political control, but they would kind of let the Jews do whatever they wanted. And so they had a a, a leadership team of 70 people that sat on the Sanhedrin, most of them Sadducees. Sometimes a Pharisee could be a part. (coughs) Excuse me. We believe that Sanhedrin uh, with the 70 uh, gives credence back to uh, the 70 elders who assisted Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 through 17. In the New Testament, the Sanhedrin consisted of those 70 members who were presided over by the high priest. So if Nicodemus was in fact one of the 70, then it might explain why he came to Jesus by night. Apparently, he didn't want anybody to know that he was talking to Jesus. Maybe he was embarrassed. Maybe he didn't want to be made fun of by his cohort. Maybe he wanted to sneak his way in to have this conversation with Jesus where he wouldn't be called out. Kind of like if you, uh, you know, say anything about Donald Trump today, you could be called out at work, right? So you got to kind of be secretive about who you voted for. Who did you vote for? I'm just kidding. You know, but the idea is that he comes to him by night and he wanted to be, uh, maybe he just wanted to have uninterrupted time with Jesus. Maybe he's just like, hey, I don't want to come when there's crowds. I want to have my own time one-on-one with Christ to figure out what this is all about. And some would offer the idea that the text saying that he came to him at night just has a negative darkness to it. There's a lot of light and darkness that John writes about, light, spiritual life, darkness, spiritual death, and so it's just kind of emphasizing that that Nicodemus was spiritually dead in his own spiritual condition. Well, you may not know this, but I think this is the very first Nick at Night episode. Didn't start by Disney. This is the first Nick at night where Nick comes to Jesus and he wants to talk to him. I think the important thing is to remember it's not when he came, that he came at daytime or he came at nighttime. It's not why he came. Did he want to argue or debate or be teachable? It's that he came. It's not not when he came or why he came. It's that he came. (coughs) Maybe you're here this morning And you need to take a cue from Nicodemus. Instead of debating how you're going to come, when you're going to come, if you're going to come, let me just invite you to come to the Lord Jesus this day. Stop thinking about it. Stop putting out excuses about it. Stop being embarrassed about it. Come to Christ. Nicodemus came to Christ. And when he did interact with Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, notice how Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi. Even though this is a respectful title that means teacher, in many ways Nicodemus has just put himself on the same playing field as Christ. Rabbi was a coveted term for credentialed teachers who earned their respect through their acquired knowledge and by holding revered teaching posts in the Jewish system. Where in reality... Jesus' credentials are not focused on worldly accomplishments, but on his heavenly and on his divine nature and mission. Jesus is not just a rabbi. In In all seriousness, it's not complimenting Christ to give him a human title. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Anointed One. Jesus is not to be associated with a human title, but with the divine title of Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the the Ancient of Days. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So this shows, to some degree, the ignorance of Nicodemus. He doesn't really know who he's talking to. He thinks he's just approaching another teacher, another learned man, Another one that he could talk about the finer things of their theology. And so Nicodemus doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't know Christ. Nicodemus, he does know that Jesus is from God. He just doesn't know that Jesus is God. He doesn't see it yet. Thank you, Dr. Severance. (laughs) So we see here, just a little bit, about how he says, that he knows that he's from God. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, he says to him there in verse 2, for no one can do these signs unless he is within him. So he knows that there's got to be something to this, right? We see a slight ray of hope in Nicodemus' thinking, like the many who believed in his name when they saw the signs that we looked at last week. Look back at verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Last week we tried to make the case that those who believed didn't really believe. Because all they did is place their emphasis on Jesus' external miracles. And a miracle never saved anybody. A miracle external to the gospel and the miracle of the new birth, an external miracle, it never saved anybody. Miracles in and of themselves don't bring salvation. They might get your attention. They might make you think but they don't create a new nature inside of you. They don't save a soul from hell. They don't make you into a Christian. And so while many believed, apparently, that they didn't really believe because in verses 24 and 25 we read about how Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear about the witness of man for he himself knew what was within a man. Now, the next verse is he's now interacting with Nicodemus. And notice how at this point, Jesus practically reads Nicodemus' mind. He knew what was within a man. Nicodemus, take note, never asked one question. Nicodemus can't even get the question. He came to him by night, but before he could ever ask, he should have asked a question somewhere between verse 2 and verse 3. But he never asked a question. Jesus knew exactly what he was thinking He knew what was within him, and Jesus knows what you're thinking this morning, and he knows what you're thinking before you think it. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what questions you have, and he has an answer for you. His answer for you is come to Christ. His answer for you is unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. His answer to you is repent and believe. And so if you're a skeptic this morning, or you're a philosopher today, if you have questions about your faith, Jesus knows and he points you to the answer in himself and in his word. You don't have to be ignorant today. But God must reveal it to you. And that's what we're looking at this morning with our second truth is the supreme importance of the new birth. The supreme importance of the new birth. Lotus, verse 3. Here we read, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you know that verse 3 begins the first discourse of Christ in the Gospels? It's profoundly significant that the new birth formed the first subject of the Savior's teaching in the Gospel. In the first two chapters of John, we saw a lot of things that Jesus did, but here in John 3, we have the opportunity to have a front row seat into what Jesus taught. And there's no more important topic for a Christian to understand and to experience than that of the new birth. And that's exactly why Jesus starts off here in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's literally the word, Amen, Amen. He's saying here, this idea, truly, truly, Amen, Amen, brings emphasis to what he's saying. It brings attention to what he's saying. It's, saying, it's like us saying, hey, listen to me. I'm about to tell you something very important. And so Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The word born again here in the original could also be translated as born from above. In fact, if you look in your text where it says one is born again, you may have a little note there by the word born. You could look at the bottom of the page or in the margin, and it'll tell you this, that it could also be translated as born from above. Same meaning, born again, born from above. It's the word genomai, which means to bear, to beget. It means to give birth to. I think the most important thing maybe to keep in mind about this verb, to be born again, is the fact that it is a passive verb. That means that it's not something you can actively do. You can't just go out there and get yourself born again. You don't get born again even by believing. You can't say, well, if I believe in God, I'll get born again. No, it's not, there's nothing you can do. God in his sovereign power has to regenerate your dead heart and make you alive so that you can have the opportunity to then respond to regenerating work of the Spirit by believing in Him. And we'll see that unpacked a little bit more in this passage. But the whole point is, Jesus, the master teacher, uses the best analogy possible. How many of you guys had anything to do with your physical birth? How many of you guys decided when your birthday would be? You're like, I'm going to come out in uh, spring of 62. Uh, Anybody? I mean, you, you can't decide... When you're going to get born, it's a work of God. Your mama can't even decide it. I mean, I guess today you could get induced or you could have a C-section. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, messing with our analogy here. But technically, the idea is, is that you as the baby in the womb don't make the choice of when you want to be born. Am I right? In the same way, spiritually speaking, you can't decide on your own merit, in your own power, With human wisdom, you can't decide one day that you want to get yourself born again. It doesn't work like that. It's a work of God. He must breathe life into you. We're talking here about the doctrine of regeneration. We're talking about the fact that you have nothing to do with your new birth. We're talking about how Dr. Wayne Grudem defines regeneration as a secret act of God in which he imparts spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. And I appreciate that definition about the secret act of God. You say, well, what's the secret about it? Well, the secret is you can't see it with your physical eyes. You don't really know if that person has been born again. They may have said the sinner's prayer. They may say they're born again. They may say they're now a Christian. But you don't really know. Only God knows. Now, we can see the effects of the new birth, and that's what verse 8 is all about. The wind blows, and you see the effects of the wind, though you can't see the wind. But in that moment in time, you don't know for another person that they've truly been born again. It's a secret act of God, and it happens instantaneously in the heart of a person. You can't literally see it. Not only is it a secret act of God, but it must be imparted unto them. It must be given to them. In I turn to Ephesians 2, you know this text well, but Ephesians 2 says it so clearly, as, we're, as we looked at this a few years back, but it just simply says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. A dead man is dead. Right? A dead man can't breathe, they can't think, They can't try. They can't put forth effort. A dead man is dead. And the Bible says that you and I were dead, spiritually speaking, in our trespasses and sins. And skip down to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so we see here that each one of us in this room were born spiritually dead. You were born in iniquity. You were born with a sinful nature. You had no ability to make yourself alive. But God, it was all God who's rich in mercy and who has great love through His gospel. And He loved us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He made us alive together with Christ. This is the perfect analogy from Christ because it shows that you and I have no ability whatsoever to be saved, which is why the verse says here that you cannot see the kingdom of God, right? Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse five, unless you're born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you remember the difference between can and may? Growing up in the South, I used to ask my mama when I'm sitting at the table for a cup of water, Mama, can I have a cup of water? And she'd be like, can I? No, Adam, it's not can I, it's may I. And yes, you may. Well, thank you, Mama. And i go up and get my cup of water. But she told me that a hundred times because may is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability, which is why a good Southern kid is raised not to say can I, but may I. In this instance, we're just simply magnifying can is the word of ability. You cannot. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God on your own merit and on your own strength unless God saves your soul. There's no uh, issue here of you somehow being able to get permission from God to be saved. You cannot be saved. The idea of being in the kingdom of God, by the way, here at the end of verse 3, some would see this as a possible reference to the millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ in the eschaton. I don't think that fits the context. Others would say maybe this is a reference to the universal kingdom of God in the sense of Psalm 103 verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. I don't think either one of those fit. I think that The definition of the kingdom of God here in verse 3 would be the kingdom of salvation. It would be the idea of the invisible kingdom of spiritual life. It would be the idea that Jesus references in Luke 17 verse 20 being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them the kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed. Nor will they say look here. Here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. It's in your midst. It's in your heart. As a born-again, blood-bought child of the king, the kingdom of God is the kingdom that only God can transplant your soul out of the kingdom of darkness and place you into the kingdom of light. Nobody else can do that. Not even yourself can do that. Only the king knows. Because only the king can put you in his kingdom. And let's now look at a third truth, if we can, about the new birth. Number three, the unenlightened inexperience of the new birth. Simply saying that Nicodemus, at this point, is unenlightened. He's not yet been uh, clear, it's not yet clear to him, and he has not experienced it yet. So verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, there's a lot of preachers who preach on this text and make fun of Nicodemus and say, what is he thinking? I mean, he's supposed to be the teacher of Israel. Look at verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel? And why isn't he getting what Jesus is saying? And that could very well be true. Nicodemus could have just been completely off and not had a clue what was going on. But it's also possible that Nicodemus understood the teaching of metaphors He was a teacher. It was common in Israel in the uh, first century for people to teach using metaphors. And it could be that Nicodemus understood Jesus' metaphor, but he just still didn't know how to get there. And he knew it was just as impossible to be born again as just as it's impossible to re enter into your mother's womb. That's impossible. You can't be born again. So it could be a a statement of Nicodemus is kind of getting one step there. He's like, wait a second, you're saying we've got to be born again, but there's no way that a person can go back into his mother's womb. Somehow on birthdays at our house, we talk about the day of birth. A lot of times Lisa and I will sit and visit and talk with each kid about I remember the day you were born. That always gets our kids' attention. They're like, well, it was on a Tuesday. Daddy went into work that day and mommy was sitting on the couch and all of a sudden daddy gets a phone call. You know, we started going into the story and the kids are like, you know, get all into it. And, and one of our kids one time asked us, well, I, I, think, I, I think I remember when I was in mama's womb. And we're like, well, you can't remember that. You know, and we're talking about like your memory, you know, when does memory start and what's your first memory. And all of a sudden Zoe, at the time, our two-year-old, she said, I remember being in mommy's tummy. And we're like, you did? What was it like, Zoe? And she said it was dark and it was warm and it was so cozy. And we started to be like, well, maybe she does know. You know. <laughs> Woo! So maybe she knows. Like, what else? Tell us more, Zoe. Oh, great one. Tell us more. You know. But you you can't re enter into your mother's womb, right? You cannot literally be born again. We get that. I think it's possible that Nicodemus could have gotten that. And he's still asking, then, how does this happen? But he's not yet been enlightened by the power of the Spirit. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll see what I'm saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The, what things? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the idea that you can't understand unless you've been, it's been revealed to you through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Nobody understands this except God himself. Verse 12, now when we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart This, in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The whole text is basically saying, unless God opens your mind, you don't have a chance. Physical only understands physical, spiritual imparts new life the spiritual. It must be a work of God. Only God can open a person's understanding to the gospel truth. It must be a work of divine grace. Now, if Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a world-renowned scholar, someone who would have known the Bible up to that time of the Old Testament, if he can't get it, how do you expect to get it? If he can't understand and he's having a conversation with Jesus, then how are you ever going to understand what it means to be born again? And my point is just this you can't. God must do it. By his sovereign grace, he must open your heart to the gospel of truth so that you can see with spiritual eyes a spiritual kingdom that he invites all those who would repent and believe to be a part of. It must be a work of grace. Let's move to our fourth heading, The Divine Instrument of the New Birth. How exactly does this happen? Verse 5 gives us a little bit more understanding. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the second time in the passage where Jesus uses the words truly, truly. Again, he's saying, Listen up, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter in. Most people understand the word spirit. Well, it must be a work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody would argue against that at all the arguments about the word water. In this verse, what in the world does the word water mean when Jesus says you must be born of water? Let me give you just a couple of views quickly on water. Some would say water refers to water baptism. They say unless you're baptized in the water, dunked like a good Baptist, then there's no way you can ever get in. Well, that's ridiculous, because that leads to baptismal regeneration, a heresy held to by some who claim to be Christ, that unless you're baptized physically in the water, that you'll never be saved. The Bible never teaches that. Nowhere does the Bible ever teach that one must be baptized, case in point, the thief on the cross, who Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise, and he was never baptized, right? The verses of Scripture tell us it's by grace through faith. This text is teaching us that it's a work of God. So it's not water baptism. Okay? Some would say the word water here refers to giving birth physically. Like women who are expecting today may say, Oh, my water just broke. Right? And they're talking about their amniotic sack of fluid around the baby just broke. I'll never forget the first time that happened to us with our first. Lisa's five days overdue, and she's like, We've got to have this baby. I mean, we got to have this baby. We had a trampoline in our backyard. So I'm like, honey, come on, let's go. Let's get, this, let's get things moving. I mean, we heard all this stuff about Castro oil and about jumping on the trampoline. Someone else told us there's a Ferris wheel in downtown Houston. And when it comes down, it moves the gravity down. I mean, how do you, how do you get this baby to come? And we finally figured it out. We were watching Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> one of the greatest movies ever made. And there her water broke. And right in the middle of that film, she's like, <laughs> I think my water just broke. And I'm running around the room trying to find the suitcase and the snacks and the food and everything that I had packed that we were going to go to the hospital and we throw her in the car and off we go. Well, some would say, well, that's what it's talking about. You got to have physical birth before you can have spiritual birth. My main reason against that argument would be that women of the first century didn't refer to natural birth in that way. None of the Hebrew women were like, ah, my water broke. That just there wasn't, the terminology wasn't used then. So the idea of that being the idea, I think that's a weak argument. Some would say water refers to the Holy Spirit. They would say, well, there's the water of the Holy Spirit that uh, somehow is involved. I think that's redundant. If it says you got, it must be born again by the water and the Spirit, it just seems to be a little bit like the Spirit and the Spirit. And so uh, I, I would say, well, are there any texts in the Bible, other than this, that connect the idea of water with spirit. And if they are, maybe that's a good one to go to. And maybe Nicodemus would have understood that, especially if there's one in the Old Testament. Any text come to mind? Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. The passage on the New Covenant precisely uses the words water and the spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 24, Ezekiel writes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Listen to verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you. So in verse 25 he's talking about cleansing unbelieving Israel from idolatry through repentance and being washed and sprinkled with the water of God, verse 26. And, so it's not only the cleansing of this water, verse 25, and, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new, what? Spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone, from your from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I believe that the water that Jesus is talking about in John 3 is the cleansing water of the Word of God. I believe that it's a connection, if you will, that it's the water of the Word, the Word from God, that brings cleansing into the heart and the soul of a man. And the Word of God, as it washes away the sins of, through the conviction and the enlightenment, is also added by the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. I would say maybe a New Testament passage that would bring this into view would be Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. I believe that to be a picture of salvation that they're talking about that she has been sanctified and and that the church has been sanctified through the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in all of his splendor without spot or wrinkle. Or consider this one in 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 23 since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's why I appreciate That quote by Warren Wiersbe, if you turn over on the back of your outline, you'll see it there at the bottom of the page where he writes this, quote, just as there are two parents for physical birth, so there are two parents for spiritual birth, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and imparts the life of God. I believe that the way the Spirit works is through the Word, The way that the Word bears weight on your soul is through the Spirit, that the water and the Word, that the water and the Spirit work together to bring about new life in your soul. You're not just saved by what some call spirit regeneration. The idea behind spirit regeneration is you're saved just because God said so. You have no knowledge of the Bible, no knowledge of Christ, no knowledge of anything, but God just saves you, and it's really a hard-shell Calvinistic thinking that's unbiblical, The idea, however, I believe, is through the Word of God. God uses the Spirit of God to bring the two together to bring you to Christ. How else would you know Christ if you didn't know the Word? The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So I think that the water here in John 3 is the washing of the water of the Word, a cleansing effect, and then the regenerating work of the Spirit. And that leads us to our fifth heading here, number five, the clear-cut integrity of of the new birth, the clear-cut integrity of the new birth, number six, verse six, uh, what, uh, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit, I'm just simply saying here with this point, that physical gives birth to physical, spiritual gives birth to spiritual, jot down 1 Corinthians 15 50, where Paul writes this, I tell you brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable, Inherit the imperishable. So, in other words, flesh gives life to flesh, spirit gives life to spirit. The same thing in Romans 8:5. 5, 5, Romans 8:5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So, part of the integrity of the new birth is that you must understand this morning that you were born again instantaneously by the spirit just like you were born instantaneously the day you were born. I could show you right now if I pull out my wallet and pull out my driver's license. I wasn't born over a process of several days. It says right here on my driver's license that I was born on October the 23rd, 1975. It's an event in time. I wasn't born over a two-day period. I wasn't born over the course of a week. I wasn't born over the course of a year. No, I was born on a certain day, and my mama told me it was at 4.31 in the afternoon. There was a moment when I was in the womb, and there was a moment when I was born. And the integrity of the new birth is the same way. When you were born again, you were born again. And you had everything that you had coming to you on the day of your birth. Just like when I was born, I was born on a certain day. I didn't slip into this world. I didn't sneak into this world. I didn't slide into this world. I didn't skip into this world. You don't skip into the kingdom of God. You are apprehended by the grace of God. And another thing, when you were born physically, you were complete. And whatever you had coming was coming to you on the day you were born. You were not born with one eye. Right? I mean, it happens in defective verse, but you, most of you, you were not born with one eye. You were not a cyclops. You were not born with one ear. It's not like you got a second eye on the day when you started elementary school. It wasn't like you got a second ear on the day when you started junior high. It wasn't like you got a second arm when you started high school. You got a second leg when you started at college. No, when you were born, you were born whole. You were born complete by the grace of God. Being born again is not a process. It's an event and time. And if you think that you were saved over time, sometimes you'll ask somebody their testimony, and they were like, well, it took me three months to get saved. It was over the course of that summer, 1999. I got saved over the summer. No, you didn't. There was one day, one hour, one moment, and one second when God said, enough is enough. I'm going to save this person. And if you think that you were saved over the course of time, then you've been sitting under weak preaching. The doctrine of regeneration is the fact that you were born in one second. Now, you may not remember that second. Like, I don't remember when I was born, unlike my daughter Zoe, who apparently remembers the womb. I don't remember. Okay, so you may not remember that second. I'm just telling you, it happened in one second in time. And if you think that I'm not telling you the truth, then look at the conversions throughout the New Testament. Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. In fact, you could say he was converted within one sentence when he said, after the bright light, he's thrown off his horse, and he sits there and he looks up, and he says, Who are you, Lord? It's possible that at the beginning of the sentence, he was not yet born again. And by the time he got to the end of his sentence, he calls Jesus Master. He calls him Lord. He calls him Adonai. Who are you, Lord? He's saved within a moment. The same idea is there for the Ethiopian eunuch who's on his chariot. When Philip comes to share with him what Isaiah meant, talking about the Savior, he gets saved and he gets baptized all in the course of one day. The same thing with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He gets saved and he gets baptized in one day. The same thing in the the beginning of Acts where 3,000 were added to the church all in one day. And my question to you would be, have you been born again? Don't think of it as a process. Don't think of it as something that happens gradually as you're infused with more and more understanding. Think of it as a moment in time when God, by his sovereign power, breathes life into you. Our next heading, number six, would be the obvious imperativeness of the new birth. In verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I just want to emphasize here in verse seven, the idea that he says you must be born again. The verb translated as must is a strong term. John uses it elsewhere in the gospel to refer to the necessity of many different things. You can jot down a few references if you want. John 3:14. he talks about the word must as the necessity of the crucifixion. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3.30, he uses it to emphasize John the Baptist's inferiority to Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. He used it to describe the proper method of worshiping God in John 4.24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He used it to talk about how Jesus carried out his ministry in John 10.16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And he used it to speak of the necessity of the resurrection in John 20, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Simply saying it's not an option. You don't have time to take your time and think about it. Sometime on evangelistic outings, it'll be like, hey, just consider maybe the cross. Just just take some time and think about it. I, I don't like that ending. I like to just say you must be born again. You must repent this day. If you come to Christ today, He will by no means cast you out. You must on this day bow the knee to Christ and beg Him to open your eyes to His gospel and to His grace, and He will save you this moment. You must be born again. And then last, number seven, the sovereign inspiration of the new birth. Verse 8 the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind obviously goes and comes on its own accord. No man can control the wind. No man can accurately predict the wind. I mean, there's the idea of sea breeze coming in off the coast. There's the idea of the Santa Ana wind. So there's a general idea of some wind patterns, but you don't really understand the wind. You can't really explain when it comes and when it stops. I mean, there's pressure systems. Maybe a meteorologist out there is going to argue with me. There's pressure systems out there, right? But ultimately, God controls the wind. He sends it and he brings it and he does so as he wants in his own time and in his own way. The master teacher, the Lord Jesus, gives us these two analogies of being born and of how the wind comes. And while you can't see the wind and you can't explain the wind, you see the effects of the wind. And it could be that after someone's been regenerated from death to life that over the course of the days and weeks to follow, you begin to see the changes in your heart and the changes in your actions and the changes in your attitude. That's the effects of the new birth. The word wind here is the word pneuma, which is the spirit or the breath of God. Pneuma. In our day and time, we talk about the word pneumonia. Having a uh, congestion in your lungs, pneumothorax, the idea of your, one of your lungs uh, deflating. So the idea is it's the Spirit of God. The wind here is an analogy to the Spirit of God. It's, it's the word that we use in 2 Timothy 3.16 that, that the Lord uses, right? And all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's the word God and the word breath together. All scriptures breathed out by God. Maybe jot down Ecclesiastes 11.5. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. All right? Just like you don't fully understand how we read in Psalm 139, how you were intricately, fearfully, and wonderfully made in your mother's womb. God does that. Only God can explain that, or how about jotting down Ezekiel thirty-seven nine? Ezekiel thirty seven nine is the valley of dry bones. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord of God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. It's got to be the breath of God. Or how about first Corinthians twelve, eleven? This is the text about the giving out of spiritual gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. God not only saves you, but he equips you and gives you spiritual gifts according to his sovereign plan. The wind is irresistible. Just look at the at the the, the, the the devastation by tornadoes and hurricanes. Nothing can really stand in the way of the wind. The wind is irregular. No two people are saved in the same way on the same day. The wind is invincible. Nothing uh, can really stop it. It's invisible. Nobody can really see it. It's inscrutable. You can't fully understand it. It's indispensable. It must be the wind of God in your life. And it's invigorating. It, only the wind of God can fill your sails Only the wind of God can take you where he wants you to go. And so let me ask you this morning, how is your life this morning? How is your condition before God this morning? How is your heart this morning? Most of you know, I used to work in open heart surgery. It was our joy to do bypass of blocked arteries. And I worked in that field for four years And the whole time I worked with the surgeon that I worked for who trained with Denton Cooley at Texas Heart in Houston where they performed the first uh, transplant surgery ever done. And I used to ask Dr. Burnett, the surgeon I worked for, how come we don't do transplant surgery here? Let's do a transplant. And he would tell me stories of of transplantation where he would be uh, wearing a pager on his belt and it would go off and he would race with an escort to the airport and hop on a Gulfstream jet and fly 30 minutes away to someone who was dying most of the time a motorcycle victim who was gone completely up here, but his heart was just fine. And they would hold him on just as long as they could until the surgical team would rush into the operating room. And he said within 15 minutes, they could crack your chest and cut out your heart. And he would take that heart and stick it in a bag of ice and put it in a cooler. And he would be escorted back to the airport, back to the Gulf Stream. And he would fly back 30 minutes to an hour to the hospital where the person's waiting for a transplant. You have about 90 minutes to get this done from the time you take the heart out of the person who's dying and you put it in. And so when he would come in to the hospital with the the, the heart in in the chest, uh, the other team would already have the patient on the table. They would already have his heart ripped out of him. He's already on the heart-lung machine and they would take that heart out of the ice and they would put that heart into the cavity of this new person and they would make all the connections. They would dump warm water on this heart, to begin to revive the the temperature of the heart, which would help circulate a little bit of warmth to get the SA node to fire, where you would start to have a little bit of atrial fibrillation, and before you know it, the ventricle would start to move around, and then it would pop, and then you would have the heart that was beating again. A heart that had been stopped, a heart that's beating again, that's a heart transplant. That may be what you need today. On this very day, your heart may be dead. You could have a heart of stone and you need to be made alive. You can't do it, but the great physician killed his own son, took the heart in a sense of his own son and put it in you. That you could have life today. That you could be alive today. It's got to be a sovereign act of God. Praise be to his name who comes to each person whom he desires in his moment and in his way and causes you to be born again. In fact, the last part of this message, you can just jot down these three questions. Have you come to Jesus to ask your question and to seek his answer? There's no question you can't ask the Lord Jesus there's no reason why you shouldn't come on this day, whether it be morning or night or noon, whether you be a man or a woman or a child, come to Christ today and seek the answer that you need, which is the answer of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, have you been cleansed by the water of the Word and changed by the Spirit? Maybe you're here today and you have that one sin hanging on to your life that you're not willing to let the Word of God wash away from you. Maybe there's that one idol in your heart that you just can't let go of. Be cleansed today by the washing of the water of the word and be changed and transformed by the spirit of God. And then number three, have you been born again by the sovereign grace of God? It matters not how long you've known about God. It matters not how much you've tried to please God. What matters is have you been born again? It's a work of God. Beg him to do this work In your life for his own glory, for you must be born again. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to see so clearly from your word what Jesus taught to Nicodemus so many years ago, the the necessity of being born again. And yet, Lord, we've seen this morning that in the passive verb tense, it's impossible for us to ever make ourselves alive or make ourselves be born or somehow add to the regenerating work of the Spirit. So I pray today, God, that here in in this room, at this moment, whether there be a child or a teenager or a college student or an adult, God, would You cause that person to be born again? Would You breathe life? Let Your wind blow over dead hearts today. Say to the valley of dry bones, rise up! and be alive. I pray that you would do that work in the life of my kids, the life of the children in this church, the life of the visitors at this church, the adults in this church. Maybe there's an adult here like Nicodemus who knows it all intellectually and yet still can't understand because apart from the work of the Spirit in our hearts, God, we're hopeless today. I pray for those who are born again already. That we would look back and stand amazed. We consider the fact that you've given us a heart transplant, that you killed your son on the cross so that we could have the heart of life. That today that would motivate us to want to respond to that beautiful truth by offering our praise to you and our offerings to you and our life to you. God, forgive us for the times we somehow think Christianity Christianity is a drudgery or a duty. Something we have to do. Any person who's ever had a transplanted heart would be grateful for the opportunity to be alive. And out of that grateful heart we have to be alive, God, may our heart beat for you. May our actions be true to your name. May our efforts be done in the power of the Spirit. May we live this week with a little more zeal and a little more passion and a little bit more fervency as we've had the wind of God blow across our dead hearts that you've made us alive. Thank you, God, that you've made us to be born again. As we sing this last song, as we consider these truths, God, may we be changed forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.